We listen to the word of God from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This reading is taken from Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Character. Character is doing the right thing when nobody's looking. There are too many people who think that the only thing that's right is to get by and the only thing that's wrong is to get caught. Those words of wisdom come to you from J.C. Watts, a black Republican politician from Oklahoma. Character is doing the right thing when no one's looking. Perhaps that's why Jesus had to go out into the wilderness, into the desert for 40 days after his baptism, to be tempted there with only the devil for company. One thing at his baptism, surrounded by crowds of people, to hear his father's voice telling him that he is God's beloved son and God is really pleased with him. But after weeks of total isolation, when the only voice in his head is that of the tempter, how does he shape up then? It's all about a test of Jesus' character as God's son. He's heard the affirmation that he is the Son of God. 
So what kind of life is he going to lead then as God's son? What in practice will it mean for him to be a child of God? And while the temptations he undergoes are, of course, specific to Jesus at his calling, we find ourselves in the same boat. Those of us who have been baptised face the daily challenge, okay? How are you going to live as a child of God? What decisions are you going to make? It's a tough call, but not as tough tough for us as it was for Jesus. Oscar Wilde is credited with saying that the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. And all of us have taken that path at some point. But Jesus didn't. He didn't get rid of temptation by yielding to it. And as such, alone in the wilderness, he would have experienced the full force of temptation to a greater degree than any of us will have done. Especially that first temptation is such a strong one after those 40 days of fasting. All you need to do to get rid of your hunger pangs is to command those stones that look so much like bread rolls. Command them to turn into bread. You have the authority to do this because you are the Son of God. You will feed 5,000 hungry people in the wilderness. You've got the power. Why not use that power for yourself now? You've got the means. You've got the motive. You've got the opportunity. How much strength must it have taken to say no to this temptation which targeted him That was surely then his weakest point. But Jesus replies, as he does to each of the three temptations he undergoes, by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, the book that records Israel's experience of wandering in the desert. Man shall not live by bread alone, he tells the devil. What really matters is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When Israel was in the wilderness, that was the lesson God wanted to teach his people. There were times when they went hungry because God wanted them to know that obeying his word was more important than having a full stomach. If Israel was God's son, then Israel needed to learn to trust and obey God. That's part of what being a child of God entails. The desert was God's training ground for his people. The desert was God's training ground for his son. The desert was the place where God toughened up Israel because they needed to know that God was discipling them, disciplining them, just as a man disciplines his son. Jesus, as God's son, needed to learn that discipline as well. Because being God's son for him would be the exact opposite of a life of ease and privilege. He would live as a servant not as a prince. He would be found with those who were hungry, not with those who had more than enough. And this first test in the wilderness addressed precisely that issue 
who would make Jesus who would Jesus make bread to feed? Would he feed himself because he was the Son of God? Or would he feed others because he was the Son of God? Would he use the power and authority he had as God's son to do what was good for him or what was good for other people? He must have known that living out an identity of being God's son would entail a life of self-sacrifice for him leading right the way actually to the cross. Well, this is the first test of that resolve. There in the wilderness, will he take the road of self-denial or the road of self-satisfaction. Which path will he follow? Would it really have mattered if he'd have turned the stones into bread? What harm would have ensued? What would the consequences have been? What damage would have been done? But Jesus knows that ethics is a matter of your own personal character. Not a matter of the outcome of whatever choices you make. A vast array of dodgy behaviour can be justified on the dubious basis that it's okay so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody would have been hurt if Jesus had turned a few stones into bread in the wilderness. But Jesus knows that is not okay. So even when nobody else is watching, even when no real harm could possibly ensue, even when he feels like he is starving hungry and more than anything else in the world he wants something to eat, even though he knows he could do it, and later on he will do it for other people, here and now he says no to temptation. The stones remain stone. The Son of God remains hungry. The integrity of his character remains intact. He denies himself and so acts in accordance with what it really means for him to be the Son of God. But the devil isn't done yet, far from it. Back he comes around too, this time tempting Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. Hardly a difficult temptation to resist, you might have thought. Yet the rationale for such a drastic course of action is that, as God's son, he is entitled to divine protection. Hasn't God promised as much in the very psalm we read earlier in the service? He will assign his angels to take care of you to look after you and keep you safe, even to the extent of rescuing you should you trip over a stone in your path. If you are God's son and he has promised that level of protection to you and that much care of you, surely he would do anything to stop you getting hurt. And if he saw you plummeting to the ground, he would send his angels to catch you and set you down gently on the soil, safe and sound. And Jesus replies again from the book of Deuteronomy, citing that verse which says, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel did that 
in the desert at the waters of Massa, when they gave Moses a hard time because they were thirsty and they were too scared to trust God. They didn't believe that God would take care of them. They put God to the test. And the temptation Jesus faced the second time was to go down the path of saying, I'm prepared to trust God so long as he takes good care of me. If I'm the son of God and I trust him, then nothing's going to go wrong. No harm will come my way. Everything will be fine. My father and I have this arrangement. I trust him and he takes good care of me. It's an attitude that trusts God when things are going fine, but doubts and questions him when life does not go according to plan. It expresses a false expectation that if I belong to God, then everything is going to work out just fine because he's guaranteed angelic protection for me. But it doesn't work like that, does it? It didn't for Jesus. There would be no 12 legions of angels dispatched to rescue him from the painful death he would ultimately suffer on the cross because he was the Son of God. And what's tested here is the level of his commitment to God. Is it conditional or unconditional? Will he act as God's Son on condition that God sends his angels every time he's in danger of stubbing his toe? Or will he be God's son every step of the journey that will lead directly from this point to the cross of Calvary? Even if being God's son means being called to suffer and to die as God's son, is he prepared to walk that path? And Jesus says no to the temptation to ask God to wrap him up in cotton wool. And instead he accepts the path of pain and vulnerability, the hard path which the Father and he agreed that he should walk. He chooses the path of unconditional commitment, even to the point of suffering and death, which he knew was the inevitable outcome of choosing to walk that path. His was not a matter of being committed to God just so long as God took care of him. His was a commitment to the will of the Father, no matter what. Round two to Jesus. And at first sight, the devil's third attack looks a lot less subtle. Here are all the kingdoms of the world, he says to Jesus. All that power, all that wealth, all that splendor. I could give it to you on a plate now. You just bow down and worship me. It's not just an appeal to human ambition, because the gospel ends with Jesus declaring that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. The question is, how is he going to get it? At the end of the gospel, having walked the path of crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus receives this universal authority as a gift from his Father. doesn't cheat by taking it as a gift 
from the devil. He chooses the hard path of obedience rather than the easy path of assuming that the end justifies the means. The outcome is the same. What does it matter how I go about it? Either way, I end up with universal authority. Does it really matter how he gets it? Well, it does to us. We're going to say Jesus is Lord. Which is better, to to be governed by one who lived a life of sacrificial love or one who sacrificed his principles for the sake of an easy road to power? There are too many dictators and politicians who sacrifice their principles as an easy road to power. And in doing that, they show who they really serve. And the people over whom they govern suffer. Jesus is different. That's why his kingdom is characterised by righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because this time he said no, again, and refused to take the easy path. There is a potential theological conundrum in the devil's third temptation that isn't really answered. Did he really have the power to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour? Or was he lying? Was this an example of the empty promises of evil? To coin a phrase from the recently revised Anglican baptismal liturgy. If the devil was lying, then Jesus saw through the lies as we need to when he promises us the earth for the sake of a little bit of compromise here and there. But there is a view of the atonement that suggests that it was by Jesus' death and resurrection that he defeated the devil and wrested universal control from him through dying on the cross and rising again victorious. Now, those before Jesus went to Calvary and died and rose again, the kingdoms of the world and their power and glory were really in the devil's hand to give to whom he chose. It was only because Jesus died and rose again victorious that he was able to say with integrity that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. It's now Jesus who is Lord. Because he was ultimately victorious over the powers of darkness through his death and resurrection. He said no to compromise and chose the costly path of obedience to God and victory over the devil by going to the cross. And ultimately our own path to victory might lie the same way. However dark the world might look, the final outcome will be the universal acclamation that Jesus is Lord. And that will be true because Jesus won this third battle in the wilderness against the devil and determined that he should walk the path to Calvary, he should secure his victory that way, and because of that all the kingdoms of the world and their power and glory are given to him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. So these temptations are all about Jesus. What does it mean for him, in practice, to be the Son of God? What kind of path will he choose? What kind of authority will he exercise? Do they have anything to say to us as we wrestle with temptation? I could and certainly should draw your attention to the way in which each time he is tempted, Jesus responds by quoting scripture. And we need to have Bible knowledge up here. 
temptation wouldn't be temptation if it didn't sometimes feel so right and so good. If our hearts weren't drawn to the wrong course of action. If the voices in our head hadn't encouraged us to bend the rules when no one was looking. Temptation happens when subjectively we want to do what is wrong and doing what is wrong feels so right. At that time, we need the uncompromising truth of what God says in his word to keep us on the right track. So that we should know what we should do, not because of what we feel, because what we feel is wrong. We know what we should do because of what it says. And that doesn't change. If you don't know God's word, you aren't going to have the resources you need to resist temptation effectively when it comes. Yet as we look at those three temptations of Jesus, we can see there is a common theme which applies to us, maybe perhaps even at the cost of becoming a bit too close to home. Are we prepared to put God first? Whatever. Putting God first for Jesus meant going hungry. Going without. Are we prepared for our Christian commitment to cost us Financially? Will we love God with all our hearts more than we do money in the bank, for example? Who would make Jesus, who would Jesus make bread for, himself or others? Who will we use the financial resources at our disposal to benefit? Ourselves or others? It's the same test. What about the temple? Are we prepared to put God first unconditionally, as he did? So we're not just fair-weather Christians, happy to trust God when everything's going our, our way, when everything's okay, when his angels are keeping us safe from all harm. Or are we prepared to trust God when it all goes horribly wrong? And it would be so much easier just to turn our back on him and give up the fight of struggling to maintain our faith where nothing makes sense. Or what about the lure of ambition? Cutting corners, of just getting results by whatever means, of compromising our integrity just a little bit to get what in a fairer world everyone, everyone would recognise that we deserve. Yes, we could be doing so much better if we just didn't put God first all the time. Now, resisting temptation is never easy. We can thank God that Jesus resisted it for us. And in our own struggles, in our own questions, our own difficulties, our own trials, he knows we need his help. But that's what he's there for. Because he himself was tempted. Because he himself passed the test. He can help us. But we need to mean business with him. He went all the way to Calvary for you. You are the reason he said no to the bread. You are the reason he said no to the protection. You are the reason he said no to the easy road to power.
you are worth it. His commitment to you never wavers. Ask him to give you the kind of commitment and response that stands firm in the face of temptation. However powerful or persuasive it might appear to be. Let's pray. Lord, we are so conscious of our weakness in the face of temptation. And we kind of think of you as being so strong. And yet you must have been so vulnerable after 40 days of fasting. So vulnerable knowing the path of suffering that lay ahead of you. So vulnerable knowing how easy it would be to do it a different way. Thank you, Lord, that even though you were weak, you stood firm. Fill us with your spirit. May we know what the right course of action is. Give us grace and strength to say no to what is wrong and yes to what is right and to walk your path. Amen.